there once again. Welcome to the Broadcast Preview Podcast. Callum Williams, as always, alongside Kindred D. St. Aubin and Jamie Watson. Packed show ahead for you. We'll talk all things U.S. women's national team, U.S. men's national team. Minnesota, of course, up against Pachuca from Liga MX this weekend before heading off to Houston Dynamo on Wednesday next week. But first... Let's focus, Kindred E. St. Aubin, on an evening that I think was identified by several as perhaps the most impressive in the regular season since Minnesota United came into Major League Soccer. A 2-0 victory at table-topping LAFC. Your immediate thoughts? I think... Uh... <laughs> My hand, fall off your seat, my hand literally just like... Um, I'm sure I, a few people fell off their seats. Yeah, the yeah exactly. You're probably right. Um, I think... I think I ran out of superlatives in that match because there were there were parts of that game where there were things that happened that you almost couldn't believe, like, you know, Mason Toy's finishes were just superb. They executed, Minnesota United did, the game plan to a T. I mean, every single week, the sporting staff, the coaching staff, they draw up a game plan tactically for what they want this team to do depending on who the opponent is. Now, whether or not it always gets executed perfectly, you never know. And it could be Minnesota United players or it could be what the opposition does. Everything that was drawn up for the game against LAFC was executed perfectly. And I can't tell you, like, I, I I felt like during the match, I couldn't think of any more ways to describe the positives from that match and the way they executed that game. They were dominated in every statistical category, which we knew was going to happen. Adrian Heath knew that was going to happen. They know that. But if you want to beat teams like that, and particularly on the road with that kind of a roster that LAFC has, even though they didn't have Carlos Vela, You've got to drop a game plan like that. And I don't care what the opposing coach says. Bob Bradley or, you know, Jill Ellison, they faced it a couple years ago in the Olympics with Sweden and saying they mm -hmm. parked the boss. You've got to do what you got to do to win the game. Yeah. And you still got to capitalize on your chances. And that's exactly what Mason Toy did. He buried those chances. Are you going to do that every game? Maybe not. But who cares? Like, it was, it was, it was to perfection so much so that I had a producer email me and say, be careful using the word incredible too much. Like, I, I didn't see it until after the game. <laughs> but I was like, okay, I, I can think of a different one. I'll whip out my thesaurus and come up with mm. a different word. But I, I think that's a, a sign that everything that Minnesota United needed to do, they did. And I think that was important. And it was a massive three points on the road. But now you got to follow it up with a performance at Houston. I think that is big. I think the LAFC win on the road doesn't mean as much mentally if you don't follow it up with a good performance and a three points at Houston. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more with that. Um, let's not forget as well, you mentioned there briefly, Kendra, that there was no Carlos Vela for LAFC. But also from a Minnesota United point of view, Jamie, there was no Aussie Alonso. Mm -hmm. Darwin Quintero came out with an injury. Mm -hmm. How much praise do the coaching staff deserve for not only claiming the victory, but in the manner in which they did so as well and the approach tactically to the game? Well, certainly you, you can't really replace Ozzy Alonso, but you can game plan uh, to not have him in the lineup. And they did just that. And, and everything that Kendra says, it's going to be an echo of that. Um, with the caveat of saying that on the day it came off to perfection. But I think you also have to realize that you can't expect to do this every single time. And when LAFC come to Allianz Field on September 29th, I would be shocked if we saw the same game plan. Simply because this is credit where credit's due to a team that hadn't lost at home in MLS play at Bank of California Stadium, who's arguably maybe the best MLS team 
ever assembled. Um, I think they will go on. I think they will break the record for most amount of points in a game, uh, in a season, uh, this, this season. Um, but I think it's to be noted that it's, it comes down to this wonderful game plan that was put in place that was defended so well. Goalkeeping was spectacular. The back line, the back three and the back five at times were spectacular because one goal for LAFC early on undoes all of that game plan until you can go and chase the game, equalize, maybe revert back to that formation, maybe tweak it, however it does. But because the defending was so good in the first 25 minutes, then you get the breakout with Mason Toy. He gets the first goal. Then he gets the second goal in quick succession. Uh, it, it came off perfectly on the night. It's not something that I think you could replicate every time, but I think there is, I said this in the broadcast, I think there is a blueprint now for a way that you can beat LAFC because Minnesota United and the staff understood that if you can defend well, absorb pressure and break out there are time LAFC because their outside backs get so high. This in this instance, it was Blackman. Sometimes it's beta shore at right back. And on the left side, it's been Jordan Harvey when they get so involved and so into the attack, it also just leaves a two on two at the back. Sometimes that's ideal for any forward at this level. It, no matter who you are, because there's so much space, there's so much time to work with. And if you can create something like they did, a moment of brilliance for Mason Toy from a tight angle, and then one where he bangs it from 25 out with his quote unquote weaker foot. I mean, you got everything, all the stars lined on the day. LAFC certainly missed some chances that on other days they've been scoring and scoring proficiently with. Um, but I think everything that you wanted to happen for Minnesota United um, from a coaching staff perspective did happen. And you walked out of there looking like you won the tactical chess match against Bob Bradley, who's one of the best coaches the United States has ever seen. I love what Adrian Heath said at training yesterday when he was like, uh, do, do we work on that with Mason a lot at training? You know, 25, 30 yards out, your weaker foot curling in with your left foot? No. Like at the beginning in, in his freshman, his rookie season here, we were telling him to stop doing that and focus on some of the other finishes. But he was just like, hey, more power to the kid. He's got the confidence. He's absolutely on a tear right now. And and they love what they're seeing from him. And how can you not? You know, and I think it's just a matter of, and then getting called into the 23s with Asani Dotson. And um, I don't think there's anybody who would bat an eye at, at what those two have done and their names being on that sheet for the 23s. Absolutely deserved MLS player of the week. Yes. Reward for his um, achievement for his uh, performance in the match. And and I think because he was so vital to what Minnesota United wanted to do in that game plan. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that he executed it to the caliber he did in such spectacular fashion, uh, there's hard pressed for me to find anybody else as good as Philadelphia's win over Atlanta was at home. There's no way you could have had anybody but Mason Toy win player of the week in my eyes. Well, and Cal, you've seen it. I mean, how many times has the team sheet, the, the MLS team of the week or player of the week or goal of the week come out and we're all kind of like, come on. But I don't think, and maybe you've talked to others around the league, did anyone bat an eye at Mason? You know what I mean? Like that we're, we maybe be a little more biased because we did the whole game. We covered the whole game. We watched Mason Toy, but I don't think there's anybody that batted an eye at, at that decision. No, and and quite rightly so as well. And, and yeah, look, I've spoken to a couple of people around the league. I had a, a barrage of um, of texts from people around the league after uh, the game in Los Angeles, as I'm sure you guys did as well, just just praising um, the team and, and in particular Mason Toy. Um, what about the the technique of the two goals, guys? Mm. Because I and and I I'm sure I have been ridiculed for for saying this, and I'm sure I will, um, and so be it. Um, 
I don't care what people say. There, there is an element of Thierry Henry about Mason Toy, and I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm not comparing. The no, two he told me that. He goes, "That's like my favorite player." He said that in the post game interview. And and he he, to my knowledge, he went to Red Bull Arena to watch when Thierry Henry was playing there for the Red Bulls, which also indicates how young Mason Toy is, by the way. But yeah, right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but more than anything, for me. It's Mason Toy's body shape mm-hmm. that is so, so similar mm-hmm. to Thierry Henry. Mm-hmm. And and if you look at the two goals that he scored, the, the, the first one for me when I first really saw it was the goal against the Portland Timbers in the Open Cup semi-final. Mm-hmm. Um, a very Thierry Henry-esque finish. And then the two goals against LAFC, you could certainly see Thierry Henry scoring goals like that. Mm-hmm. Um, not a bad person to look up to. Well, hundred percent, and and we all hear people say like, "Oh man, I I love Ronaldo. He's my favorite <laughs> player." But that doesn't mean that they're going to be Ronaldo. So Mason Toy says, "I love Thierry Henry. I want to emulate his game. He actually has the ability to emulate a lot of what Thierry Henry did, and probably still does in the park somewhere, scoring goals." in that style, in that level, at that caliber. And again, you are not saying he is Thierry Henry. And I think people have to be careful. Their eyebrows are always raised when you when you say a player's name in line with a, in a, a superstar like a Thierry Henry. You're not saying he is him, but the style of his goals, the way he, he, he shapes his shot, the way he approaches the game, what he does is very Thierry Henry-like. And it doesn't mean that he can't want to emulate Thierry Henry. Mm. And we've seen it across the board with several several players in every sport, but some players just have more ability than others to actually possibly get to that. And, you know, more power to Mason Toy if that's who he saw as a young a young boy at, with Red Bulls and that he's continued to craft his game, work hard at his game, and really the maturity level again and again. And if, I think if, um, not to, I'm not going to try to pump somebody else's podcast, but listening to Extra Time, they did one on Monday that was a Labor Day edition. It had Ike Parra on it. It was before the LAFC game, and they asked Ike Parra about Mason Toy. Like, what mm. is it about this kid? And he said that there's a day at training where him and Michael Boxel kind of looked at each other and were like, this, this kid's got something. You know, defending him. where he, They were just, Ike said he was just getting worked at training. Like, And there's something special about this kid if he can take it and run with it and continue to work hard. And I think that's what we're seeing now. Thierry Henry was just so smooth when he did everything. And for me, Mason doesn't have that smoothness yet mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. But there are glimpses in which you start to go, that is why when you see the finish he did, his his strike on the second goal, he actually doesn't really leave his right foot when he's shooting it, which means he gets the technique so right that he's not just exerting all of this power and his body weight behind it. And he's not striking it with his just his laces and and you know, the proper technique where you, you start on one foot, you land on the other, all that. No, it's, it's, he stays off that right foot, but his balance is so strong on his right foot as he's striking with his left foot. The ball's picking up speed as it hits the back of the net. I mean, it is a stellar, superb, it is a textbook shape in how you hit a ball. And especially with your non-preferred foot. Um, I love the little touch he took. Uh, He had to take, he ended up taking three touches on the ball and played from behind by from Gregish on the first goal because his, his first touch took him in his second touch didn't quite get him where he wanted to be. So then he had to take like another little one to cut it back inside so he could shape his body. Mm. That was for me when I started going, okay, that was, it got there in the end and maybe need to be an on type finish. It probably would have done in one less touch. Sure. But having said that though, it got there in the end and he had enough space and time to be able to do it. 
And to finish from that, it's an audacious angle, but it's such a good, powerful finish. And when he when he hits it, there's not a goalkeeper that's saving it. I mean, it's just that good of a strike uh, from that tight of an angle. And um, I remember quickly to wrap up. I mean, talking about Ike and Boxel saying that this preseason they had me come out to add numbers. You know, when before practices started, and Mason was so sharp even then. He at one point turned, faced me up, and was running at me. And I remember thinking. I just have to dive in right now because there's no chance I can stay with him stride for stride, even in my prime, even when I was playing, but even now. So because he took the turn so tightly, I was in a great spot positionally defensively. He's just doing things so much quicker and efficiently, and he's doing it tighter. He's doing it cleaner. And now he's getting the end product with it too. That's why I think the evolution is starting to come. That's why you're starting to see a guy who's potentially the defender of the year. sitting they're going, this guy sucks to mark day in and day out because things are getting crisper, cleaner, and they're coming off at an alarming rate now that you're starting to see the end product on. That's when you're like, damn, I'm glad he's on my team. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Come game day. Well, the most shocking thing I find about that, Jeremy Watson, is that you were defending, actually. I didn't want to be. Um, it was a mismatch for sure. I think Mason just ran into him. That's why they passed it to him because it was a mismatch. Mason on me. Thought you were a flying winger, you know, even at the ripe old age of what, 33? You still drop the shoulder, do you? Uh, yeah, yeah, once or twice. <laughs> In my mind, I tell myself, go. The feet just don't quite go as fast as they used to. The drop the shoulder has a different meaning now. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's like you guys didn't see me fall at practice yesterday when I stepped in the hole by the garbage. I, I, did you? Did you see it? I actually had did a little... Did you see it? I, I thought I did, but I didn't want to say anything. <laughs> Brent Coleman Let's literally interrupted it. his interview, his video, and he was like, they, you know, Steve was asking him a question, and Brent's like staring at our camera, and all of a sudden he's like, I just, I just got to stop. Kendra, Kendra, are you okay over there? I like legitimately just flat out rolled my ankle in a oh, hole, oh. hoping nobody saw. Four but to Brent, six weeks for sure now at this point. Brent for sure thought I had like fainted, because my knees buckled and like collapsed and it was great. I want to faint when I see wow. Brent Coleman's Thank God, arms no in one. sleeveless jerseys. Guys, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I missed it. Yeah, I missed it. But what I am going to say is I'm, I'm going to assume it was a yellow card for diving. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. That would sure. be the first. But this time I didn't have an excuse. I wasn't wearing heels. <laughs> Sometimes go. that happens to me in the booth, but I have heels on. Cal has a problem all the time, too. All the time. All the time. Um, so let's just um, talk about the second goal for, from Mason Toy as well. Um, the first goal, um, Jeremy, you, you correct in saying... Um, one or two touches too many. I thought the third touch, I thought he's done a little bit too much here. Mm -hmm. And then he executes a fabulous finish. The second goal, Kindra, you can tell when he's lining up, I'm thinking, don't, don't. Mm -hmm. well, well, why are you doing this? Yeah. I think it was Darwin who was just ahead yes. of him. Yes. And my words, he gave it everything and more and he hit the living daylights out of it, didn't he? And it was like somehow, and in the little bit of an, and I'm going to give Darwin a little bit of credit here because I do think him continuing that run into that space made the defender kind of guess, should right. I step to the ball or not? And created that little window of uh, opening there for Mason Toy to take that touch. And we all know Mason Toy is not lacking confidence. He's mm -hmm. not afraid to take those kind of shots. It's just usually we see it in training and not necessarily in a game. But I mean, there wasn't a thing that you would change about anything that he did on that, on that shot, in my opinion. And even the first one, it was a little bit awkward. The angle was a little bit much. And you think about the very, very first chance he had in that match early when he had the goalkeeper out on the edge of the 18 trying to defend. And you've got two defenders for LAFC back on the line. And we're all thinking, why isn't Mason Toy shooting this shot? I think he made up for it with those two goals. And that second goal was an absolute beauty. And that is the one Adrian he kept talking about saying, we don't work on this in training. This isn't what we want him to be doing. But if he's going to do that and he's going to put it in the right spot, 
have at it. Have at it, son. Kind of like Hassani Dawson and some of the strikes he's had when he mm-hmm. stepped up. So, I mean, I wouldn't change a thing about what Mason Toy did in that. And I think that um, when you see what you see on the training ground come to fruition in a game, then it's like this moment of just absolute elation. And um, there wasn't there wasn't one thing. I mean, we were up in the booth and we're just going, it's like you're speechless. How do you even react to that? And it's at LAFC. It's in front of the 3-2-5-2. Nothing I would change about that goal and just hope that, you know, he does it a few more times for Minnesota United. And no doubt Mason Toy, quite rightly so, gained all the headlines. Yep. But credit where credit's due as well. I thought at the other end of the field, Vito yeah. Minone made the saves required on more than the odd occasion. I thought the three centre-halves were fabulous. And one player that's hardly had a mention at all, who I think is more than deserving of, is Lawrence Olam, because mm-hmm. I can't remember, Jamie, him giving the ball away at all. No, and I think that's why Adrian Heath called on his number in that spot. You know, and I think that that was certainly a decision that was made with the thought that Lawrence can make the right decision under pressure in the middle of the field more often than not, and almost every time, really. And I think he did that, and I think he broke up a lot of plays. Um, I think that he did a wonderful job of putting himself in the position to make the play look simple and more easy than it actually was. And I think that's what you get with Lawrence Olam. That's why Adrian Heath wanted to sign him, you know, even at 34 years old. Now he's 35 because he knows that there's an element of trust. And when you want to change the formation up, you're making these drastic uh, plans to try to go in and execute a way where no one else has been able to do something different and get three points from. Lawrence was able to solidify that spot that Ozzy Alonzo would have been in there. And he put himself expertly in those spots won't get the credit he deserves because he put himself in so many of the right spots so many times that it looked like an easy play when really it wasn't. There was a lot more that went into it. Um, but obviously the three guys behind him were fantastic. Uh, Brent Coleman came in after not having played uh, several weeks on and he, he put himself in spot time after time to make the right clearance, make the right, you know, saving tackle. Uh, Vito Minone had ridiculous saves. The first goal actually um, doesn't happen if Vito doesn't make a save on Atuesta right. literally seconds before. And then Brent Coleman clears it before there's a, a follow-up chance inside the box. Moenbe Tarak clears it down the line, curls it to keep it in bounds, doesn't just kick it anywhere, stays bound, and that's when Mason does his brilliant bit on mid, at, at the midfield stripe and combines with Jan and runs on from there. So, I mean, it, was, it really was indicative of how the rest of the game played out that first goal because it really showed that Defense turned it offense quickly in transition, and the defense was 100% reliable on the day, and then it ends up with Mason Toy's moments of brilliance. Some really impressive stuff from Minnesota United. Um, one of you guys, I can't remember who it was, um, sparked something in my head, so I'm going to ask you this now, um, just because why not? Um, best team we've ever seen in Major League Soccer. LAFC have been identified as potentially being that this season. It was also said last year with Atlanta United as it was the previous year with Toronto Toronto FC. So given your footballing expertise and having seen these three sides play an awful lot over the course of the last two and a half, three years, where do you stand on this debate? Everybody's healthy. 
Everybody yes, yes, yes. Hypothetically. Yep. Go ahead, Kendra. You got I, I would actually say LAFC. I think they're the most complete balanced team. And yes, Carlos Vela, what, 22 goals, 15 assists, some like absurd numbers that he has right now. Or no, is it 27? 27, 27, 27 goals. 15, yeah. I don't want to short change him here. <laughs> 27 goals, 15 assists. I mean, it's clearly there's an element there, but he's giving the, the 15 assists have to go to somebody. So I think from a, an aspect of just balance and all across the board and depth of that team, I would give it to LAFC. And I think every team has had their special players, Sebastian Javinko for TFC. We all know Atlanta United, Joseph Martinez, and now El Morone is gone. But I would say LAFC across the board, top to bottom, including some players that, you know, Bob Bradley has done well with in um, and Atuesta coming into his own, in a Mark Anthony Kay that maybe nobody knew about, you know, in the broader scheme of things until he's really come to his own, into his own with uh, Bob Bradley and LAFC. So I would go LAFC. I would say if you played those two teams at a neutral site, Who's two teams? The LAFC and Atlanta United oh, okay. team of last year. Yeah. That LAFC would beat that Atlanta team, and it would be a thrilling match that you could charge a pay-per-view for. <laughs> I mean, it would be that good of a match. Mm-hmm. I think Toronto FC's team was good, but I don't think they were as dominant. Mm-hmm. They were very good in 2017 and, and were the only team that's ever seriously looked like they were going to win the CONCACAF Champions League. Um, I really, really truly think that if LAFC can get into the CONCACAF Champions League next year, along with Atlanta United, since they won the Open Cup, I think next year, if those two teams get in there, I actually think LAFC gives the better chance, but I think next year could also be a year in which an MLS team makes it to the final again of the Champions League and actually has the best chance of winning. Right. Because I think this LAFC team is that deep, is that strong with everybody healthy. And, and I'm going to also agree in the facts of, of yeah, identifying LAFC as, as the best because it's very, very impressive. When you actually look at the roster on paper mm-hmm. compared to Atlanta and Toronto, mm-hmm. I, I always thought to myself, this Toronto FC team, that there's nobody that can be, at least in the short term, that can be better than this mm-hmm. team because of the amount of money that they invested and the uh, reputation that many of the players um, held and and and. Um, we're very fortunate to have coming into that season. Whereas you, you look at LAFC and, you know, somebody, for example, who, who I'm a big fan of in Edward uh, Atuesta. Yeah. Nobody had any idea who he no. was when he came in. The yep. same could be said for Mark Anthony yes. Kay. Exactly. And, and I just think whilst there's no doubt about it, without Carlos Vela, mm-hmm. LAFC aren't the team that they are. Mm-hmm. But they still have... Brian Rodriguez. Yes. They still have Diego Rossi on the far side. They still have Adama Diamande. Mm-hmm. And, and I just think there's more of a collective feel mm-hmm. about LAFC compared to the, the previous two uh, teams I mentioned. And talking to John Thornton before the game, who's their Manny Lagos, the GM, yes. their GM, he said Diego Palacios mm. will be one of the best left backs MLS has ever seen. He's Which like, we literally haven't didn't even mention. Yeah, you know, we didn't even see him. The, so his, show, his paperwork just finally yeah. got cleared. Twenty year old uh, Ecuadorian. He said this guy is legit. He is the real deal. So mm-hmm. the one weakness I would probably say LAFC probably has is defensively mm-hmm. suspect at times, which obviously they're they're not. I mean, yeah. in the big scheme of things, they're just going to get stronger with Palacios there. And, man, that's – I mean, and they're not they're not weak defensively. Don't get me wrong. It's Walker yeah. Zimmerman and it's Eddie yeah. Segura who's probably sure, yeah. in the running with Eichelpar for defender of the year. But mm-hmm. that outside back, you're just – Jordan Harvey's been, been very, very good. Palacios is supposed to be even better. I mean, find a weakness. The rich get richer. 
for sure. It'll be very interesting to see how LAFC do. Uh, let's move on, shall we? And uh, there was a gargantuan game at Allianz Field on Tuesday evening where the US women's national team were victorious over Portugal by three goals to nil. Carly Lloyd scored two. I thought she was wonderful, Kendra. And Lindsay Horan grabbed the third as well with a fabulous header. Um, an evening which uh, I had a lot of fun at and really enjoyed. Always good to see the world champions in town. Um, but your overall thoughts on, on a, a very good victory for the United States? What I think this of this victory tour for the United States, for the women's national team, is it's a well-deserved opportunity for them to go around and showcase their team to the fans in the United States that have supported them every step of the way, especially when you go to France and that's where you win your World Cup or even in Canada, it wasn't easy for, you know, people to get to all the games and because the venues were so far apart spread across of Canada. So for me, I think well done and uh, kudos to the United States women's national team on doing these because it is a very tough, it's been a grind for them, um, you know, heading into the World Cup, doing the World Cup, coming straight back into NWSL season for those that do play in the NWSL, and then right away getting into this victory tour. And the fans come out, the team shows up. Yes, there were a few players who did not play in that match, but you still had Carly Lloyd. You just mentioned it. You know, you still had some of the studs. You didn't know if Alex Morgan or Megan Rapino were going to play or not going to play. You still had Mallory Pugh. So all these players that you still, Lindsey Horan, Sam Mewis, I just, I, I love the victory tours. I love these tours that the United States women's national team does after a major tournament or after a world cup for that fact, because I think it's, it's owed to the fans, not owed in a, in a negative way, but it's deserved on both sides. And um, I mean, the, I don't think the soccer game was great because it's, it's Portugal, you know, they beat them for nothing the night before they were basically had 11 people straight down the middle of the field. And the U S is doing what they do and trying to break teams down, draw them out and still play fantastic soccer. But from like mm -hmm. a back and forth, did Portugal hardly get out of the end? Yes, of course. But I mean, kudos to the U.S. I enjoyed the game. I went with my husband and my daughter. We had a blast. And um, I just, I love seeing the fanfare around it. And I love yep. seeing all the girls, boys, men, women, whoever it is, they're cheering on the national team. Yeah, there were so many people, that's what I noticed, young people there yeah. that were inspired and yes. were so happy to see the world champions. Yes. Uh, Jamie, I, I thought uh, Julie Ertz again was, yes. was Oh, fabulous. I didn't even mention her. Again, yeah, I'm a big fan of hers. Mm -hmm. uh, I think she was uh, fabulous. But uh, talking of good performances, yes, it was 3-0 to the United States, but it could have been 6 or 7. Mm -hmm. uh, the Portuguese goalkeeper Pereira, only <laughs> 20 years of age, by the way. She looked like she was 12. She did, right. yes. Uh, but once to watch for the future she had a very good game yeah definitely and and look it's an intimidating atmosphere being in the u.s playing against the u.s women's national team but let's also not underestimate how intimidating Allianz field was mm -hmm. you know imagine being a 20 year old goalkeeper against the world champions the defending back-to-back -back world champions standing in front of the wonder wall with the american outlaws right behind you you know what I mean? That's, that's those, you know, they talk about gaining experience. That's an experience right there. It may not have been a, a very pleasant one um, for Pereira, but I think that um, should be better off for it. And I think that the entire Portuguese team um, gave a good account for themselves. Look, they're, they're outmatched clearly uh, as is just about every other team in the world with the U S women's national team right now. But I thought, as you mentioned, Julie Ertz in there was, was, spectacular as usual showing her versatility being able to play just in front of the back four if she needs to be a part of the back four she can carly lloyd the ageless wonder hmm. scoring goals uh, and just doing it in, in in a couple different ways one she should have had uh, before the goal she scored was probably the hardest one of the chances she had in the first half um expertly puts her penalty away uh, i think you had the perfect angle you and um 
you were sitting, I believe, with Josh. You guys had like the perfect angle for Lindsay Horan's uh, yes. header. Um, she skies above everybody. I, I look. I, I think it's a, as Kendra said, it's a wonderful chance to see um, your heroes in person. And I think that this is a part of changing the culture of soccer for young people, both men, women. Anybody that wants to fall in love with the game, you go to an atmosphere like that and an experience like that, it doesn't matter what the scoreline is. Look, it's not that everybody's going to remember 10 years on from now that the USB Portugal on the back of a brace from Carly Lloyd and sure. Lindsey Ryan had this big towering head. No, they're going to remember the fact that they got to see the women's national team just a couple months short of winning, uh, winning the World Cup in har- the hardest women's World Cup there was to date. Yes, uh, to navigate and where the ability had never been higher. Then they got to go and see it at their favorite stadium, Allianz field. And they got to chance to see it in person, experience it, be a part of it. It was a wonderful um, production as well before the game. Uh, I thought that was really cool with the unfurling of the stars and everything. And the, the Tifo that paid homage to Prince and, and everything. Yes. I mean, it, it was, it was as wonderful of a, atmosphere and experience as it was a result in a game um, performance-wise from the women's national team. And I think that it's, it just goes to show whether it's the women's team or the men's team having a game at Allianz field really truly can be one of the best places that the U S national team, men and women can have games at going forward. Another great account for itself, Allianz field and the fans that and supporters that showed yeah. Well, and, and congrats and kudos to the staff that worked the game for Minnesota United so, are oh, part yeah. of it because we got an email, an all-staff email from U.S. Soccer, basically, that was forwarded on to us that they had never been to a brand-new stadium that was as well done and thought out as meaning the people well that were handled, well yeah. operated, yes. that the people that were handling it, and if a snafu came about, they immediately, you know, was, was resolved. So, I mean, kudos to the entire staff at Allianz Field that worked that game, which is a, a lot of and majority of Minnesota United employees. So, because that's a big undertaking in the midst of a crazy s- season and a schedule that we've had. I suspect U.S. soccer will return to Allianz yes, Field at absolutely. some stage. Sooner rather than later. Uh, before we talk about the men, Kendra, uh, a, a little whisper and rumor on the interwebs that uh, Phil Neville, the manager of the England uh, national team, has been linked with the U.S. women's national oof, team job. Wow. Um, not for me, in my opinion. Um, yes, England had a good World Cup. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying this because I want I, I, I don't want to lose Phil Neville. I, I'm just saying I don't think he would be the right choice. But, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I will bow to your superior knowledge here. Um, we have spoken on this podcast before. I think we're all in favour of, of Lauren Harvey, perhaps, mm. um, being given an opportunity that a couple of other names have been mentioned. Um, but Phil Neville? Well, and I've spoken to a few people about who is going to fill the shoes shoes of Jill Ellis. And now with this new GM role with Kate Markgraf taking yes. over in that role, formerly Kate Sobrero um, of the U.S. Women's National Team, I think it's, it's, it's going to be a tall task. And I think that I had not heard Phil Neville. And in fact, I was just watching a highlight of um, him coaching the other day, the women's national team and Gloria Stanway had a beautiful goal, the young player for England um, in their match the other day. And Um, I don't know. I mean, to me, it's more about what does Phil Neville want to do? I mean, everyone has kind of said he took this job, was given this job with the England women's national team, kind of out of nowhere. Nobody had heard his name. He had never been the head coach of anything before. Now he's a head coach of a women's team and everyone felt like he was using the women's national team in a world cup as a stepping stone for a different 
men's head coaching job along the way. So um, I don't know that he's the right choice or the wrong choice. He, I did not hear anything but positives from the, the England camp when he was the national team coach once he took over. But um, it's going to be interesting to see the the interviews that do take place. I don't know that. I, I, can't, I honestly can't say whether he's the right choice or not. But honestly, outside of the name we've mentioned, Laura Harvey, I don't even have a clue who else they're looking at in the sense that, in the sense that, who would be capable of filling that role? I don't know. I mean, and they've they've tried before taking 17s and 20s and 23 coaches mm-hmm. and putting them into that position and seeing if they're ready, and and it doesn't seem to happen because no one seems to translate from kind of the youth systems into the head team. But I liked Phil Neville when we chatted with him um, for the World Cup. Um, I thought he had a good message. You talk to anybody who played for England, um, they, they seem to enjoy – his style and his tactics and his motivating side of things that he coaches women really well. I don't know. I feel bad for whoever takes it initially because it is such a big, it is such a big hole to fill. Yeah. Yes, it is. It's uh, arguably the biggest job in women's football around yeah. the world, isn't it? So. And there's a lot of turnover, I think on the whole staff that will be happening. I don't think it's just Jill that's going to be gone. So, I mean, you're talking about starting over from possibly scratch with, a lot of the same roster, mm-hmm. but a whole new staff. And from what I've seen in the past, a lot of the women's national team, especially the senior players, seem to have a lot of say in how they want things done, want things run. And that'll be interesting because you're managing a lot of egos. And I don't mean egos in a negative way, but no. you're managing a lot. There's a lot of off the field and other things that you're managing, not just the on the field. It's going to be very, very interesting. We'll keep our eyes peeled on what happens with the women's national team. Let's move on to the men who... As we said a little earlier on, we'll play Mexico on Friday before playing at Uruguay, I believe, in St. Louis uh, next week at some stage. Um, a lot been made, Jamie, already of, of the youngster, Serginio Dest, who has come through the Ajax Academy. Now, that's never a bad thing. I've no, it's not. never met a, a footballer that's come through uh, the Ajax Academy and not done okay for themselves. How are we going to view these next two games for the U.S.? Are we going to see an experimental roster? Or are we going to see uh, a roster that's been tried and tested before without you know, the Toronto FC players that we had mentioned on a previous podcast? Or, or a sprinkling of both? What, what are you expecting? So, uh, first of all, Stephen Goff reporting uh, this afternoon, just about an hour ago, that uh, Serginio Dest will start. Oh, right. Okay. So, just within the last hour, that's what's being reported. So... Uh, we will get the opportunity to see him win his first cap for his country. Um, and I think that is a big opportunity for the likes of him. But I also think that this is a time in which we talk about the this this transition era with the U.S. men's national team. Where are we going? And we've got the youngsters. And this is the opportunity now to get them experience. So when they get to World Cup qualifying, they're ready for it. We don't make the same mistake as last time. Then they get to the World Cup and everything's you know much better off now than where we were at our lowest low before not qualifying for the 2018 World Cup. I think this is the opportunity in which you give those young players experience against Mexico. Not in World Cup qualifying Mexico, but you get them experience against Mexico. That heated rivalry. That rivalry in which these two teams do not like each other and it is always a tightly contested match. I don't necessarily need to see Tim Ream playing out of position, you know, at left back in this game to try to fill a void for this game to get a result. I don't care about the result. 
I'm not going to come on here and talk to, you know, talk to anybody about, oh yeah, we beat Mexico 4-0 or we lost to Mexico 4-0. If it's the right roster and the right starting lineup with young players playing in that, I want to see Miles Robinson have a yep. chance to play this game because I think he's, he's shown that he can do it confidently in Major League Soccer. Okay, so now go against likes of, you know, Mexico mm-hmm. in a match or against Uruguay. You know, I, I want to see uh, Dest play. I want to see Miles Robinson play. Uh, I want to continue to see Aaron Long play at the international level. Um, I wouldn't mind seeing Reggie Cannon play, seeing if he could get uh, a run out and see if he could do what he does so well at FC Dallas um, on the national stage. Uh, in midfield, I want to continue to see Weston McKinney. I like what I've seen from him so far. Uh, Paxton Pomichol, I think it's too a little too early for Pomichol with this cycle. I don't think he'll be a player that we'll see in the World Cup. I hope that I'm wrong, and I hope that we see this continued progression right. from Pomichol all the way through. Mm-hmm. Um, but if he got some minutes in this game, 30 minutes on the back end of one of the other two games, or maybe both, I'd be okay with that. Would make sense, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. Um, and then I think, you know, look, Christian Roldan, again, is he a guy that you would say maybe is further along, but still youngish, and he's still considered a part of this, you know, transition period. I'd like to see him. And Tyler Boyd, he did really well for himself at Allianz Field. Yeah. He's got two goals to his name. All those were here. Continue to see if he can continue to produce. And then I think we've seen what we've seen from Jossie Zardes right now. And I know Berhalter loves Jossie Zardes. He was able to resurrect his career in Columbus. Give me Josh Sargent. Let me see how he does in that situation. Yeah. You know what you're going to get with Zardes. Nothing he's going to do in this game is either going to phase him out or progress him further. So give me these young guys in these games. See who really progresses in this. And if we lose two games, I don't care. Yeah. That's my thought on it. That's that's where I stand. Maybe I'm on an island with it. Maybe that's what everybody else wants to see. But if we win both games 4-0, who cares? Mm-hmm. If we lose both games 4-0, who cares? We just need to see progression with the players and with the plan in place that Greg Berhalter has. Is that ultimately, Kendra, what we need to see from these two friendlies, progression? A hundred percent we need to see progression, but at the same time, like I think people find it hard to believe that if they lose 4-0 that it, there is progression because mm. that's just the way the fan base is. That's right. the way That's the way people are. That's the way people in the United States, that's the American way. Like, it doesn't almost matter. Even you could tell people till you're blue in the face. It's a preseason game. It doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter if you go 4-0 in the preseason or if you go 0-4, like in any sport, right? Like, but people want to see results, and especially when you're playing against Mexico. They will not feel that it's progression if you lose that match or you get throttled, even though we all as soccer people watching this game and trying to keep an eye on the future will feel like it's progression and you see some players with good performances and tactically you see some good things working and maybe Burhalter has some answers in his staff, some some conclusions that he comes to on certain players or certain pieces or, oh man, he really doesn't work there with him in front or you know him behind, whatever it might be. So I would like to think that we could be all as, as a United States watching this women, this men's national team level-headed and saying, what is progression? What is a good result for this U.S. team? barring just a win or a loss, but I just don't know if the country is capable of that, especially mm. against Mexico. I agree. Like progression to me would be seeing players and new people out there and new pieces fitting into the puzzle. Yes. But it's it's going to be a challenge for people to go into it thinking that way. And and maybe if you come out but with a draw people, or a close what people, loss, what fan, people are we worried the about? fan base. But, but, I'm not saying worried. 
I'm just saying that's what that's what will be the message. And even in the Gold Cup, I don't think people. But this isn't the same as the Gold Cup. No, of course not. We should get it's... pissed when we lose to Mexico in the Gold Cup final. We should be mad about that. Yeah, I agree to a certain extent. Of course we should. I, but I, I would, I want to be pissed anytime the team loses. Like I, ultimately, but I think you can make progress and get results at the same time. Right. Because we also don't know who Mexico you're going to get the most progress in those for sure. If 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 you're having those moments of of combination play with youngsters and it leads to goals and you end up winning game, of course you're going to have bigger steps up the ladder of where you want to get. But just to say that like you lose four zero and there's nothing good that can come from that. Yeah. Obviously nothing good comes from losing any game you play. There is no such thing as a friendly, but this is one of the few times in which you can play Mexico in a match that there's not qualification on the line or there's not a gold cup on the line. So really the result does not matter. I also think it really depends on who Burhalter puts out there. You know yeah, if I mean? it's his like, most experienced team, then you have to win. Right. Or you what have enough you experienced pieces out there that should be able to handle whatever Mexico throws at them, that then you put a few of the new pieces in. Uh, Jackson Yula, you know, I mean, Nick Lima has been in a few times now. Reggie Cannon played in the Gold Cup final against Mexico. So there's certain pieces that I don't think are as questionable or as maybe head scratching that if you didn't get a result, you would be okay with it as long as you felt progression from the side, progression from the roster, progression mm -hmm. from decisions that Burhalter was able to make and seeing certain things. Um, but if you have some of your regulars out there and some of your veteran players and some of your players that should be able to carry a lot of the load and then just a few of the others sprinkled in and you get crushed for nothing, then if I, I would be a little bit more concerned. Yeah. So let me ask you this, both of you. A game against Mexico on Friday evening and you have a mixture of players earning their first cap, a couple of players that are earning maybe their third or fourth cap, and one or two veterans, mm -hmm. and the U.S. lose 2-0. Is that progression? How is that viewed? Well, I mean, I guess I would have to see how the actual... I can't just look at the 2-0. You can't you know just look I mean? at the results. I understand that the performance... I get what you're saying, but I would be okay if they lost 2-0 with that line, with that lineup, mm. knowing that there was progress made in certain positions. Greg Berhalter is trying different things, maybe people in different positions, new people mixed in with veterans, mixed in with guys with some experience, and how do these pieces to the puzzle fit? Like, then I, I, I would be okay with that if, like, you felt that there was something that he found, some answers he found from that group, positively or negative, going forward into that next step. But we've talked about this before, too. Like, the time is short, until all of a sudden they do start needing to get results. So Greg Barhalter, try these different things. Absolutely. Figure out what who works in your system, who works where, bring in some of these new players that have never seen the you know, have never had a cap, maybe some who haven't had one in a while. And and see the pieces to the puzzle that work. So I, it's hard for me just to go by a scoreline and say, sure. yep, that's progress or that's not, depending on how do they look on the field. They can look fantastic and they can do exactly what Greg Berhalter has asked him and have them and, and lose to nothing and it could be progress. They could get crushed, and they, they don't do anything that Berhalder wants to see from them, and it looks like a total mess. Do you still get some answers? Probably, mm -hmm. but I just don't know that. You know, I think it just depends on how the game looks. When I think that you – what I will say to that is, is Kendra is right in the sense of it is impossible to just look at it from a scoreline because I think that is the blind nature in which we're trying to – avoid having that that look at it and i know you're you were you were throwing this out to spark the conversation you've done brilliantly with that because we can't simply just look at did we win or did we not win anymore yes we are so much further beyond that mm -hmm. that now you have to say 
are we better off because we now have a look in uh, now this big pool of young players, we now get an idea of which players can survive at this level and can thrive and can actually contribute and actually be a part of this group going forward and which players simply can't cut it. I'd rather see Corey Baird play right now than Jossie Zardes mm-hmm. because if Corey Baird can play at that level, at the international level, that's fine. I don't need to see Jossie. I don't need to see Tim Reed necessarily. I don't necessarily need to see, you know, John Brooks has played in the World Cup. Yeah. You know what you're going to get with John Brooks, right? Can Walker Zimmerman do it at an international level against Chucky Lozano? You know what I mean? Can can they be smart and and can they make sure that, you know, is Miles Robinson able to read the game at the international speed of play? Yes. If we lose 2-0, but we figured out, hey, by the way, we were completely outmatched, but we had a good enough team on the day with young players that made it to where we only lost 2-0 because they were smart enough to thwart a lot of attacks. They were able to solve a lot of problems. We could, you could learn so much more from this game in a losing fashion than you could in a winning fashion because we could roll out the most veteran team that we have, win the game, and be no better off for it than where we are right now. Mm-hmm. So what is the point of having these games where there's no competition on the line if you don't get experience for this young generation that's going to carry on into the 2022 World Cup and the 2026 World Cup here in the United States. Mm-hmm. That just, should be your goal of wanting to really, really win is that 2026 World Cup. I just think that Burhalter is going to try to find a balance because even well, in the why? starting 11, because it's not fair if you throw out all youngsters who have zero experience. What's how is that, fair, though, at the international level? No, not fair, but how do you, how do you, how do you truly assess a C team, C team meaning like they don't have any experience, yep. against the first team from Mexico? Is that really fair? To those players, is that a true evaluation of that player? Yes, yes, it you is because so? you can you can figure out you is a player going to be better with Pulisic next to him? Of course he is. Yes, right. he is. Of He's course. definitely going to have a better, uh, probably probably better off. You know, being able to combine with a player like that. But are we really going to be able to see that player stand alone if he's next to Pulisic and he's sitting there going, well, here's my opportunity within the national team, but I'm standing next to a player that's much, much better than me, much more experienced than me. So I'm just going to pass the ball off to him and let him kind of carry the workload, try to do his moments of magic and just feed off of that. That's a passenger mentality. That's a, that's an attitude in which people can get lulled into. And you can't really say you were on your own to figure this out with the guys next to you. And we really saw steps forward doesn't mean you have to win the game to not not see steps forward. If you put out a lineup that's your most veteran lineup or even mixed, those players are more than likely going to ha- going to hide in that setup or get hidden in that setup. But if you it's, if it's all players that are going right, we've got to be in this tumultuous environment against a difficult team trying to get a result and really show what we can do at the next level, then put them in a group in which they all say right now we have to move forward together without relying on our veteran players to get us through this. Right, but 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 there is I, there, I there disagree is, to disagree. There, there is also an element of a couple of of in inverted commas veterans here, with the likes of of John Brooks, for yes. example. So I completely agree. We know what John Brooks yes. can do, but yes. John Brooks is in his mid to late twenties. He's going to be involved in the next World Cup, you would assume. Yeah. So now I think you have the opportunity here of saying right. Um, let's see, Miles Robinson, mm-hmm. how do you look alongside somebody yes. who we view as the number one centre-back moving forward? Maybe it's Walker Zimmerman, 
going in exactly. and, and about playing what? alongside John Brooks, you know, because you have to understand who looks better. In my opinion, that they will have John Brooks now in all the big tournaments. We know what he can do, but maybe Greg Berhalter's thinking, who's the best player alongside him? This is why I think Weston uh, McKinney mm -hmm. has been brought in. We all know what Weston McKinney can yep. do, yes. by the way, still only 21 years of age. Yep. He will be a part of this national team for the next 10 years, yep. um, providing he doesn't get any serious injuries. So... Is that then why Jackson Yule has been brought mm -hmm. in to play alongside him? So uh, I think there's there's elements to, to both arguments and both debates. But ultimately, the main thing and the main word that we've used several times is you have to see progression. Mm -hmm. I think it just depends on personally and personal preference what progression identifies as. And just yep. to be clear, because I think I've been the most outspoken about it, so I will clear this up. I, I don't want a 50-50 split of veteran young players. Right. I would lean more towards 70-30. Yeah, 75-25 young players to yes. veteran players where you where you do maybe pair. I, I love that idea, actually. And now that you, you say that, totally on board with that ideology of it. But then maybe you need to necessarily have those pairings that work together, maybe pair some uh, a little bit more experienced player with a very fresh young player in there, and then have those kind of partnerships around the field. But I want more inexperience than I want experience. But you're right. It's naive to think let's go 100% one way or 100% the other way. All veterans are all inexperienced players. Right. But I, I would love to split it. 70, 30, 75, 25. That's, that's what exact, I think. And that's exactly like the center back pairing is a perfect example because it's a key piece. It's a it's an exact, you know, position where you need that partnership. You need to know who's going to complement each other and work together. And so, mm -hmm. like, for me, that's that's what I was trying to get at. The the combination of both. I just don't think it's it, – and I use the word fair, but you throw 11 guys who don't have any national team experience out there. I don't – I just don't – Think you're going to get anything from it no and you're right you're absolutely right about that I, I i do agree with that and if if my point wasn't being articulated well enough that's on me i just think that you get more out of it just don't let it happen again <laughs> right <laughs> only new guys how many times she says that to me off air it happens all the time. <laughs> okay so uh Whilst we're talking of of an experience and and potential opportunities uh, minnesota united hosting Pachuca on Saturday. And it's already been identified that Thomas Chacon will be starting 19 years of age. This is the new young designated player for Minnesota United. Um, because of various international call-ups as well and, and one or two little niggling injuries. I have no prior knowledge, but it wouldn't surprise me if the team was something along the lines of, let's go Dane St. Clair in goal, a back line of Manly, Coleman, Ormsberg, and Mwimbe Taratu. I think it's a, it's a very, very big evening for him. Uh, Olderman Martin in the middle. Maybe then Finlay, Chacon, and Miguel Ibarra behind Abu Dunladi. That, that would not surprise me if we see something along those lines. Um, all the headlines, Kendra, seem to be leaning towards Thomas Chacon and his first starter, as they, as they should be. But how big of an evening, as I just insinuated, is it for Mwimbe Tarat, who, let's not forget, only has a deal until the end of the season? Well, every game, every time he has the opportunity to step on the field is a big game for him. And I think the other night against LAFC was a big game for him. And any moments and any minutes he can get, he's got to prove himself capable of being re-signed or continuing on for the 2020 season. So these are these are the times where, and I, I thought he grew into the game against LAFC. There were a few times early on with the backdoor cuts of Rodriguez and the pace and the speed that he was beaten 
Um, and fortunately, in that three center back system, Michael Boxel slid over every single time. Really well done in that second defender role. But um, this is a big moment for everybody. Yes, Moambi Tried only has a, has a contract till the end of the year. But for me, these are the games that Adrian Heath always talks about. This is so important for these players who are getting these minutes to really show themselves and prove why they need to be continued to be brought in the fold for the 18. This isn't the tricky part for these guys is the fitness factor is the game fitness factor. And it's the same thing we talked about with hair to Berlin. It's a hey, same thing we talked about with Aston Villa. They want to put their best foot forward and show that they deserve to be in the 18, but they also need to, you know, realize that they're not game fit for 90 minutes. So um, I'm excited to see Thomas Chacon. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to see him. I mean, I know we have Tom in Kansas City briefly, but in a different situation at home, um, I hope he gets in just an absolute raucous, um, you know, standing ovation and, and applause from the crowd when he's in that starting lineup. And I've, you know, watching him at training today, you can see once again, you hear his teammates talk about him in interviews that what he's capable of. And um, I, I think that's the player I am most excited to see on Saturday because a lot of the other guys we are, we've seen, we know to a certain extent, but this young player, this young DP that's been brought in, I think uh, this could be a game where he could really, really light it up, not necessarily scoring goals, but just doing what he does on the ball. And Brent Coleman said it best yesterday. He's simple. Mm-hmm. He reads the game so well. He's simple. He plays beyond his years. He plays what the game gives him, but then does his moments of magic when he needs to. And that's what, um, you know, I'm excited to see tomorrow the- or Saturday. What the heck day is it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm ready to at this point in the season. Um, the, the, I must admit though, Jay, I am a little bit surprised that they've opted to, to play him in a number 10 role because I think we were all in a, agreement here, aren't we, that we're going to see him over the next few years play in a wider position, more, more than likely on the left-hand side. Um, so if you are Adrian Heath, what, what's going to the mindset then? Why are you playing this young player in a number 10 role when you would expect him to be to the left of that for the foreseeable future? Um, one, probably because of the situation of not wanting to really give Darwin or Kevin Molino a game if you have to. Um, so I think just because of where they're at with a few knocks, you know, so late in the season and just given some rest. So I think one, it calls for that, but then also too, as you start to integrate him in, you want to give him pictures and ideas. And I know that right now in the foreseeable future, it'll be on the outside for him more so than it will be through the middle as a number 10. This is also his first significant set of minutes and most likely his first set of 90 minutes here in a position in which he, you want to see, can he start to get a picture of what that number 10 role entails going forward in this system? So when he does eventually get there, he's seen it in a game before and it's not completely foreign um, or a different concept. You kind of keep it on the back burner a little bit like, Hey, all right, you know, the game against Pachuca, remember those, those holes you saw, those pockets you saw, the number 10 works like this. It gives you a good idea of understanding um, what that player in that role asks. So when you're playing out wide, you have a better understanding of where to combine and where those players might be. Um, I, I think it's a probably more 60 to 70% simply because of the lack of bodies. Right. But also there is an added benefit to that of him understanding what it is to play that role and not just say, right, you're not going to see the light of day at the number 10 role for, you know, two years until you get a little bit older and the roster takes shape to where there is, you know, a need for you to switch over to the number 10. You know, the more role, the more positions you play throughout your career, and especially in that front three, the more understanding you have, the easier it is to combine with those players because when you've seen it firsthand, it's easier to understand 
in the midst of a game when there's not much time to think that person should be here in this moment in that 10 spot because I've been there. So I should know to pass it here and then move there. It just helps out with your overall awareness playing within Adrian Heath's system when you do get a chance to actually do it in a game setting. Yeah, really looking forward to seeing Thomas Chacon's first start for Minnesota United. Uh, 7 p.m. that game kicks off on Saturday. And for those of you that can't make it to Allianz Field, uh, we will be providing a stream on mnufc.com as well. Uh, Before we wrap things up then, uh, Minnesota United then back in action quickly away to Houston Dynamo on Wednesday. Kindred E. St. Aubin, a bit of an, an indifferent season for the Dynamo, I think it's safe to say. What should we expect from Minnesota next Wednesday? A win. Three points. Minnesota United. I mean, there's a reason why Chase Gasper will be, you know, left out of the starting lineup for two straight games. LAFC. I mean, obviously we talked about the cautions, but and against Pachuca, I'm assuming he won't be in the lineup. We mm-hmm. never know. Or in the 18, whatever. But I mean, there the, there's an element of pressure on every single match. And this is a road game where you can get three points. Houston is very good at home. Terrible on the road. They're good at home because of the weather. It's supposed to be 95 degrees and humid. So that is their bread and butter. That is why they get, I think, as many victories as they have gotten over the past few years there in Houston. Joy, Minnesota United, that, it, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Minnesota United cannot expect anything less, in my opinion, than three points on the road at a Houston team that has struggled, has fired their head coach, has not gotten a little boost and a bump from a, a changing of the guard from a head coaching standpoint. Um, I don't know what the latest is on Moro Minotas. I don't know. Did I miss something on that? Uh, he... Well, he'll, he'll be staying at least till the end of okay, the season. Okay. But even if he knows that he's on his way out or whatever, you know, Albert Elise, Kyoto, there's been all these crazy kind of, it seems like people just are unhappy there. When I speak to people in the Houston market that cover soccer, they, they just seem to think that it's a mess. It's kind of a mess and they need to write the ship. So three points from Minnesota United. They're in 10th right now. Houston is. And uh, they should expect absolutely nothing less than three points on the road at Houston. After victory in Los Angeles, no doubt, Jamie, it, it gives Minnesota United the teeniest, tiniest bit of breathing space. But is, is Kendra right? Is a victory the absolute expectation? I have a different opinion. I think that it's not three points or bust, just simply because you're – Everything that you said, 95, humid, away at Houston, one of the best teams uh, over the last – three, four, five years at home, seven wins this season um, at home right now, only three losses, but also a team in which they know this is essentially the game that decides which way the rest of their season goes Mm -hmm. because they've already played 28 games. So they now have six games left and they're sitting 11 points out of a playoff spot right now. It's a must win for them. it? It is an absolute must win for them. So I think that you can expect everything to be said to them that the playoffs essentially for them starts now. Vancouver's been eliminated on 27 points. They're on 31 points. Now, of course, Vancouver's played two more games. You know, it's not mathematically impossible, but I think if you're Minnesota United, do they feel that they have the ability to go get three points there? Yes. Do I say it's absolutely three points or no? I don't think it's necessarily that. I think you have to get something from the game, at least three points, starts you in the conversation now of really saying, okay, we should expect to have a home playoff game from here. But I still think the mantra of win at home, tie on the road still applies to game number 29 as it does game one. If you can get three points, which you've been able to do in the open cup down to zero at halftime at Houston, that's ideal in 
every possible scenario and, and what fans and players should be with their mindset of. But for us to label this as a must win, guarantee has to be a win. No, I think that's a stretch. I don't think that it is that case. I, I just my thoughts on it, Cal. Well, well, I do wonder as well what the lineup is going to look like here say, because so many players are on international duty. Mm -hmm. They will get back to the country, I would assume, over the Monday, the Tuesday. I know the the U23 chaps are flying in on the Tuesday. Mm -hmm. um, so with, with that in mind, Kendra, if you are Adrian Heath, <laughs> where, where do you even begin to, to think of, of, of how do you even begin to, to approach this game? Is it something similar to LAFC uh, in terms of a formation, not necessarily an approach, um, because of the amount of bodies that you may very well be missing? Well, I think that's going to be, I think Adrian is going to have to really th have a think about this one, not just because of who's available, but like Mason Toy and Asani Dotson, if they come back on the Tuesday and say they've played 90 minutes against Japan, whatever it might be. They've been away at training camp with the 23s, you know, in California. So I don't think it's a, it's a stretch to say they could play in Houston mm -hmm. and at least be available. But I think they may have to be regardless because of the bodies. And knowing that you have RSL at home on the Sunday after Houston on the road, how much does that play into, into part? I mean, who's coming back? Who's gone? Is Ozzy Alonso healthy? Is Darwin healthy? Is... There's so many question marks right now, and I think that the saving grace, maybe not the saving grace, but you know there are th at least three really solid pieces that can get the job done. Mm -hmm. No questions asked, and that's Ike Aparo, Michael Boxel, and Brent Coleman. And you saw what they just did against LAFC. So if you are thinking tactically of a change, of a formation, of a who's healthy, who's not, who's coming back in, who just played against Japan, you know, where's Jan Gregush, what's he doing? I mean, he's gone, Correct. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Yes. Okay. So he's gone. He's not available, but just played against LAFC. So, um, you know, I think that Adrian Heath has got to feel good about a lot of the pieces. Is Angelo Rodriguez healthy? I mean, there's so many question marks right now, but. Um, so does that make it a guaranteed has to be three points then? I'm not saying guaranteed has to be three points, but my expectation would, would, I would want to expect that you can go there and get three points. That's that's my opinion on it. Is a draw in one point on the road against a Western Conference opponent at this point in the season in Houston where they're really good at home? Is that, would you still take a point? Of course you would take a point rather than losing the match. But I do think that the way this team is playing right now and having the confidence they have off of that win at LAFC, a place where no one has done it mm -hmm. this season, the expectation for me would still be a win on the road. But I would have to see, like, I don't know who the heck is going to be available right. from an international duty standpoint. That's all. Be. That's all. I, and I thought about that before I said the three points in the first place. Mm -hmm. Like, but it's so many things up in the air, and I just don't think Houston has their you know what together. It's it's going to be in intriguing. I, I'm totally agreeing, Kendra, in terms of I personally would expect Minnesota to go there and win. But I also agree with what you're saying as well, Jamie, the fact that I don't think it's necessarily a must-win no, game. No, a point would be great. Because of the result in Los Angeles, yes. for sure. Um, Jimmy Watson, final thoughts from you, then heading into the game against Houston Dynamo next Wednesday. Uh, I mean, just I, I want to see continued uh, progression off what we saw in LAFC in a place in which, we'll be quite honest, we all made our predictions and none of us predicted a win. <laughs> so uh, it was it was very much an unexpected result that bought you back into the home playoff discussion race. So if you want to be a team hosting a playoff game, these are the type of games that you need to pick up max amount of points. If you want to get into the playoffs, you still need to be getting something from the game. If you want to make life difficult with the way that the Western Conference is, 
walk away with nothing, see where you fall after another up and down weekend of games and, and whatnot, but it'll be difficult for everybody with international call-ups likes of Seattle missing 10 players for their yeah. game against Colorado. That's a game you probably expect them to get maximum points from. So everything is kind of oddly shaped and this international window could not come at a worse time for mm-hmm. a lot of teams in this league, mm-hmm. but uh, Minnesota United just went and did what no other MLS team has done. And MLS play at bank of California stadium. So should they go in there to BBVA compass stadium? and get points bbva stadium now not bbva compass got to used to saying that um bbva stadium and get three points yeah i think they can do it yeah it'll be intriguing um my thanks as always to kindred e st Aubin to jeremy watson as we mentioned a little earlier on saturday we'll see you at allianz field for minnesota united against pachuca for those of you that can't make it we are streaming the game on mnufc.com so join us from 7 p.m and then Next Wednesday, Minnesota away to Houston Dynamo in a huge Western Conference clash. Join us, 7 p.m., Fox Sports North Plus. Again, as always, thank you so much for joining. You've been listening to a Minnesota United production.